You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Look around you. Smartphone beside you. Tablet at hand. Blink once and imagine all those things gone. You're no longer connected to information or people. Is anybody there? Are they okay? You simply don't know. Now, imagine you're in the middle of an armed conflict. Safety may be a distant memory, and violence is not the only thing that can harm you. People are talking of war. Fighting is erupting in your city. There is no power. What if phone lines go dead and the internet connection shuts down? With no means to charge your mobile phone or go online, you find yourself (laughs) cut off from the rest of the world. News doesn't reach you. You're left in the dark, wondering and worrying. What's going on? Are my family and friends safe? Is anybody coming to help? Being able to connect physically and digitally can give you back hope and strength in a crisis like this. But this need to connect can also be turned against you. During armed conflict, every form of communication brings uncertainty. You can't be sure if it's safe to talk in the street. Local media can be controlled by armed groups. What if your conversation is overheard? Where do your messages end up? Who can you trust? What news can you believe? Can you distinguish fact from fiction? What used to be a network of connection can trap you in a web of fear and manipulation. Enabling safe and trusted communication makes a real difference. Your community can reconnect and reorganize, ask for help, make informed decisions and demand accountability. This dialogue turns frightened people in need into active responders. The humanitarian community has made a lot of progress in the last decade to help people communicate in crises. But armed conflicts are very different from natural disasters where things may improve over time. Conflicts pose quite specific challenges. It's crucial that we take that into account in order to establish better, smarter, and safer ways to communicate with people in need. Amidst violence, communication is a lifeline. No matter how difficult the circumstances, meeting people's need for information and dialogue is never a choice. It's our collective responsibility. Um, good afternoon. We just wanted to uh, to give you a little bit of a, of a sense, you know, of what this topic, you know, means for all of us. Uh, good, good afternoon. My name is Jacobo Quintanilla. I, I work as community engagement advisor at the International Committee of Terrorists in Geneva. Um, I'm a little sick today, so apologies if I'm making. I don't sound like like Barry White, you know, normally. So apologies yeah. for that. Um, it is a real honor to be here today at, o- at ODI moderating what I think is going to be an excellent uh, panel discussion. Um, 
on what engaging with and being accountable to affected people concretely means. I would like to start by welcoming the panel. We'll, we'll do the official introductions in, in just a minute. Um, I'm welcoming you, of course, you know, over 100 people here in, uh, in London today and almost 400 people all around the world. So thanks, you know, colleagues from uh, Somalia, Bangladesh, Nigeria, many other countries, you know, who have been in touch over the last few weeks. Uh, very interested in, uh, on this topic. Um, please hold your questions, you know, for a moment. We're going to have a discussion with, uh, with the panel, and then we'll have 25, 30 minutes, you know, for Q&A with you here in London and also with colleagues around the world. Um, a couple of housekeeping notes that I've been reminded to, to say. Uh, one is that, of course, you know, feel free to tweet. Uh, use the hashtag commis8. Uh, and also put, put your phones, please, on silent. Um, thanks again, everybody here and abroad uh, for making the time to join us. We really hope that this discussion meets your expectations, and, and we hope that, you know, we don't let you down on why you came here today. But before we begin, and since we are here at ODI, and I'm looking at, at Wendy Fenton, maybe she might remember this editorial that appeared in the humanitarian exchange uh, a while back. So let me give you a few seconds, you know, to read it. I don't know if you noticed the date. July 2003. Uh, 13 years after this editorial came out, um, during the 2016 Grand Bargain, this accountability revolution was rebranded the Participation Revolution. Since the Rwandan genocide in 1994, a number of quality and accountability initiatives within the humanitarian sector have emerged, disappeared, and merged. All these initiatives sought to help organizations to become more accountable to people affected by crisis, to treat people as subjects. Not, not at objects. In other words, um, this is far from being a new, a new issue. However, despite, despite the many global commitments, the institutional uh, progress that has been made, the certain degree, initiatives and research, there has been, lar largely speaking, and this is what we have come up with in our discussion paper, uh, minimal progress on this particular area of humanitarian practice. Last year, we partnered with, uh, with the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative to take a stock on what's working and what's not working, particularly in areas affected by conflict and uh, violence. That's the, that's the mandate of the ICRC. We try to map up where we are today and where we are going, uh, where we can go from here, particularly looking at the digital space. Um, we have produced the discussion paper that I think you, have, you may have, had, have seen before. Um, and, and in a nutshell, um, this is what we learned. Engagement with and accountability to people affected by crises remains one of the areas in the humanitarian sector that, in recent years, has seen the least progress. While improvements have been made during natural disasters, the implications, risks, and opportunities to be held accountable during conflict and violence are not as well known or documented. Rumors, misinformation, and propaganda as well as unmet expectations in highly contested and insecure spaces, erode trust and proximity. They also worsen the asymmetrical power dynamics between humanitarians and those they seek to protect and assist. In 2017, the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative surveyed the existing literature 
and interviewed over 60 humanitarian workers and donors to see what's working, what's not working, and how things can be improved in today's digital landscape. Here's what we learned. Affected people are increasingly vocal about their role in humanitarian action and do not want to be left out. This means that humanitarian organizations must learn to relinquish power and control, but without compromising humanitarian principles. For that, building mutual trust is key. However, in times of violence, trust can be severely undermined. Maintaining proximity to people, both physically and virtually, is vital. So, how can we get better? One, humanitarian organizations need to integrate engagement and accountability into the core of their operations. This requires strong support and policies from humanitarians' executive and operational leadership. This is urgent and non-negotiable. Two, organizations need to consider adopting the core humanitarian standard on quality and accountability. This can help with three, ensuring more systematic interagency coordination. We know that in times of conflict and violence, this can be more complicated. Four, still on the ground, Humanitarian organizations must improve their capacity to assess not just people's needs, but also local capacities, the local environment, and local information ecosystems. This, in turn, requires five. Building and developing trust, both in and out of the digital space, with crisis-affected people. To do this, organizations should six, Demonstrate how decisions are guided, or not, by local feedback mechanisms. In short, it's not just about listening to what people say, but also acting on it. Therefore, humanitarian organizations need to 7. Become more accessible, physically and digitally. For that, they need to 8. Embrace new forms of collaboration with and seek to positively influence the private sector. But donors, too, play a critical role. One, donors can make demonstrating engagement with and accountability to people a compliance issue, a condition for funding. Two, donors can fund and use external third-party feedback mechanisms. Three, when feedback demands changes to humanitarian programs, donors need to be more flexible, letting go of their own share of power and control. Four, donors need to support the digital transformation of humanitarian organizations. Five, and finally, donors must strengthen the humanitarian academic nexus and help co-create applied research that actually helps figure out not just the what or the why, but the how to engage with and be accountable to <coughs> people affected by crises. Uh, don't get me wrong, you can still, and should, you must read you know, the 90-page document, but just in case you don't have time, we just give you, you know, the executive summary in, in a nutshell in four minutes. So um, again, thanks for coming here. 
let me go back to the panel uh, and welcome you officially today. So we have a, an excellent panel that is going to help us um, unpack some of these issues and connect, you know, to some of the, the potential opportunities, uh, realities, and, and challenges. Um, so let me start by, by welcoming uh, Christina Bennett, the head of Humanitarian Policy Group here at ODI. You have their bios in the in the flyer that we have there, so I'm not going to I'm not going to repeat, you know, the, the 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 professional and academic qualifications of the panelists. But please, you know, I'm sure you have read them before. Um, far on my left, uh, Anna Hiyela, senior director for humanitarian programs at Internews. Uh, welcome, Rachel Hasty, global protection advisor at Oxfam GB. And last but not least, David Locorcio, head of accountability to affected people at the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you again for for being here with us. Uh, please, you have your your you have the uh, the Twitter handles in the in the screen in case you want to to tweet uh, what they say. Um, last but not least, uh, before we start, one very important announcement from our side: the ACSC and Fondation Irondel, uh, a media development organization based in Switzerland, have just signed a memorandum of understanding to improve. Our collaboration will be signing uh, a similar MOU with, uh, with Internews. Thanks, Anahi, for all the hard work, you know, on getting those MOUs through our legal departments. Um, for a number of years, the ICSC, Internews, and Fondation Irondel have been collaborating in countries like the, the DRC, Central African Republic, uh, Mali, the South Sudan, to try to meet the information and communication needs of affected people and, critically, their demands for accountability. We really hope that through these MOUs, the collaboration that, happened, that have been happening in the field for a number of years become more predictable, systematic, and effective at other levels. So thanks, uh, colleagues from Fondation Irondel and from Internews on, uh, on your hard work. Um, OK, so shall we start? OK, so we're going to have, we're gonna have until, let's say, almost 3 o'clock. We're going to have a, a, a discussion, you know, where we're going to try to agree and disagree on a number of things. I mean, we don't have to agree or disagree uh, necessarily. We're just going to put some questions, you know, um, to the panel. Please hold, as, as mentioned, please hold your thoughts. Uh, write them down and after, you know, from 3 o'clock, we'll have time to, uh, to put those questions to, to your panelists. Um, so let me start, you know, on what we have called a little bit, you know, we want to touch base on, on what the state of place is, the state of place, sorry, is today. Uh, my, my first question it's going to be for all of you, but I would like to start maybe from, uh, from Christina. Um, engagement with and accountability to people affected by crisis, as, as we have you know, um, documented on the report and you have seen in the, in the video, remain one of the areas in the humanitarian system that has seen the least progress in recent years. So Christina, and, and I would like to touch you know, base with all of you. What's your diagnosis of this problem? Thanks very much, Jacopo, for this um, and um, for this putting together this great panel. For me, um, the biggest sticking point on all of this is the humanitarian business model. I don't think any of us have poor intentions in this regard. I think over the last years, there's been a lot of recognition that accountability to affected populations um, and a different kind of accountability in the humanitarian system is necessary. Um, I just think that the way that our systems are set up, that the business model of human the humanitarian endeavor doesn't allow us to do that. What do I mean by that? So we have this weird and curious hybrid of bureaucracies operating somewhat based on market-based relationships and underpinned by political drivers. 
So what does that mean? That means that we've got you know, tight control at the top, either politically or financially, by a group of donors and governments that control not only the money but the terms of engagement. You've got these vertical supply chains that are sort of market-based, where you've got contractors and subcontractors, these relationships that su su uh, suggest kind of a hierarchy of, of organization. Um, and then you've got, um, and within that, you've got um, th this kind of orientation, client orientation, not to people at sort of the bottom of the supply chain, so the end users, the, the people who are affected by crisis, but actually a client orientation to donors. So all of our accountability, all of our client services are oriented to those who pay for our services, um, oriented to the donors, not oriented to um, the people that we serve. We're going to talk about who is who our real client is in, in, in a, throughout the discussion. I would like to put the same question to David. What's what's wrong with us, David? Well, <laughs> well first, thanks for uh, for uh, bringing me on the panel. I'm very much looking forward to, to listening to what my colleagues here have to say and hear also the questions from the audience. Uh, but if we wanted to, to understand maybe why we're not as far uh, on this path as, as we hoped for, I think a few points uh, might, might be worth mentioning. One is the fact that uh, it's still largely optional, so it goes back to the, the point about should it be a compliance issue or not. Uh, it's about also the fact that up until now, we've kind of lacked a framework that is, is really applicable to, ev you know, to everyone uh, about what does it mean, what do we need to do, and to some extent, I think the, the core humanitarian standard is bringing this framework that may allow to have evidence uh, for what we do and also bring the voice of affected people on how they see our performance. And that, that's an important point, I think, that is still missing to a, a degree until now. And the last point I want to mention is around uh, the approach we have to that in terms of change management, which up until now has been largely lacking, not just for AAP, but many other issues in the humanitarian sector. And if we just think that by creating new standard policy, we can make change happen. Uh, you know, we see it doesn't work. Can you broker even down? What do you mean by change management <coughs> in the humanitarian sector? What, what's, you know, how would you change it? What do you mean, and how would you change it, briefly? Well, uh, we're trying to to uh, to look at the good practice. You know, first, like there's three broad elements that you need to have to make sure that change happens. The first one is having buy-in, so people wanting actually to to embrace this change and make it happen. The second thing is about having people actually knowing how to do it. You know, okay, I'm on board, but how does it, does it happen? So that's the second point. The third point is about having systems enabling you to do it. So uh, up to a point, you could imagine that in, in our situation, and that's true also for ICRC, the systems we have, the planning for results, the monitoring, et cetera, are actually in some cases preventing people from actually putting that into practice. And it goes back also to, to the, the donor requirements, the donor conditionalities, that can be uh, an obstacle to, to making that happen. What's your take? Um, I mean, to respond to your question the way you pose it, which is what's diagnosis of the problem, in medical terms, I would say it's a classical identity crisis. Uh -huh. Um, you know, you or you know, it's it's the same type of identity crisis that we say, um, you know, someone will feel when they retire after a long career or something like that. And I feel that the issue is that we keep talking about putting communities at the center of the system, but we are failing into addressing the conversation from the point of view of if they are at the center, then where are we? And I think that that's the bigger question. That's and that also it's a shift in in a cultural 
in, in, the, in the cultural way in which we see what humanitarian aid is. So it's, 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 to me, it's a much deeper issue than just, or not just, but like then just having, uh, you know, a know-how and buy-in and the system and the frameworks. I think in a way we have been talking about it and there's a recognition that that's not there. But to me, for that to actually happen, you need to think about, okay, if we are not at the center of the response anymore, which is what we're saying, we're not anymore at the center, right, then where are we? What's your position? What, where's the strength that we can bring to this system? Okay, thank you. Rachel, what's your, what's, your, what's your take on this first question? I think it's the issue of power, and I have to disagree with you, um, Anahi, because it's fine for us to say communities are at the center, but they're not really, are they? I mean, look who look who's on this panel, look who's in this room. They're really not. And I think if we fool ourselves and start saying, yes, communities are at the centre and we're doing all these things, um, then we're creating an illusion of something that's not there. And certainly I don't think is felt by people who I've spoken to. So I think we have to really acknowledge the power and the way power plays out. The business model is interesting. I hope you'll tell us later how we should change our business model, what the solution is. So I think that's really important. And it plays out in lots of ways as well. I think uh, just really practical things like I was, uh, I was in uh, Bangladesh earlier in the camps where the Rohingya refugees are. Just being able to talk to people, especially talk to women in a language, you know, to have the language, to have translation. Uh, really basic things are, are, are just not prioritised, not given value. Uh, we're not investing in those things. Sorry, just to correct that, I didn't think that communities are at the centre as the system is now. What I'm saying is that we keep talking about the fact that accountability means that communities are at the centre. I guess it's interesting the reflection of putting people at the centre. So we're trying to put them at the centre now, where have they been for the last you know, number of decades? So I think there's a little bit of a content yeah. argument on, on the whole discussion. Uh, we're talking about power, we're talking about this is optional or not, we talk about change management. Um, and I think we want to drill down on the issue of power because this is something that um, it has come throughout the throughout the the discussions we had, you know, in the production of the of the paper. At the core, and Christina, looking at you because you have been you have largely written about this and talk about that. We are talking certainly about power, and and this paper argues that fundamentally, uh, engagement and accountability requires that humanitarians and donors. We'll talk about donors at the end, so you know, let's 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 wait, you know, for that particular. Uh, by, but engagement requires that humanitarians learn how to relinquish decision-making power and control to a principle limit. Are we ready? Well, I, I mean, I think... Maybe, maybe that's not the question, so no, please... No, uh, that's not the question. I was going to start by saying that. First of all, first, let's just define what kind of power we do yeah. have. We have money. Yeah. We have influence. But in the countries in, what we're in where we're operating, we have this kind of assumed power. We don't have actual power. We're not elected. We're not... Um, sometimes we're asked to be there. Sometimes we're not. So I think we also have to define what kind of power it is that we do have. Um, but having said that, I don't think the question is whether we're ready to relinquish power. I think what we've been saying at HPG, certainly in Time to Let Go, and some of the other work that we've done around this issue is that power is being taken away from the system anyway. Um, you've got you know, uh, uh, you've got a system that hasn't been able to necessarily respond to the speed, scale, and complexity that these crises require. You've got then organizations, people, um, others filling those gaps. So you've got diaspora organizations, you've got private organizations, you've got local networks, local organizations, people. Um, 
governments that aren't normally part of our, um, our humanitarian lexicon kind of coming in and filling those gaps for us. They are actually providing legitimate responses in our absence. Volunteer movements, the refugee mm. crisis in Europe is a perfect example. You had lots of volunteer movements filling the gaps where international agencies weren't. So it's not a question of whether we're ready to relinquish power, it's whether we're ready to open up to those who are already doing the work around us. But that's a, that doesn't mean it's accepting people who are not part of the so-called mainstream humanitarian system. And in a way, it's, it's a question of sharing that, that power that we think we have. But it's not about, we're not the arbiters of who's in the system and who isn't in the system. I think, um, you know, part of what our kind of our problem is, is that we have a sort of overinflated self sense of our self-importance, um, where we think that because we are principled humanitarian actors, because we have, you know, we have standards, we have these principles that underpin our work, we are somehow better um, than others, or we do things in an exceptional way. And I think what, you know, what we do by positioning ourselves that way is, first of all, we negate the fact that there are many others who are well positioned to, to respond, but who perhaps wouldn't be card carrying humanitarians um, um, but you know are we then shooting cutting off our nose to spite our face by not allowing them by not engaging with them by not um, by not engaging them in the response that we we hold, hold so close Rachel you were you also mentioned the issue of power what are your reflections on this particular on this particular topic I mean, I agree very much with what you said. I think accountability is really about how you exercise power, um, particularly towards those who, who are most influenced by it. Um, I think if we, if we really, really want to make some difference, if we do want to um, change the system, we have to change what we've got control of. Um, I would very much say, actually, it's our organizations, it's our systems and structures. It includes not saying we have sole ownership of the term humanitarian. Um, but I think it's all, for all of us kind of individually and, and in our groups to think, I mean, for me, I have to think, um, should I be in the role I'm in or what am I doing to work towards someone who is more representative of the communities we work with to be in this role in two years, three years, four years? Um, I think that's a really big challenge. And that can be whether you do it at an individual level, um, in how you exercise the power you have in your job, or at an organization, or a system and structural level. Um, if we look in particularly uh, at situations of our conflict and violence, uh, does this question, David, get a little bit more complex? I think, I think the issue that we've discussed uh, throughout the paper as well is uh, principle limits to uh, you know, the way that we operate you know, in environments that have a multiplicity of local, international, and regional actors. So, how, how, does it, how, how do you see the issue of devolving power or sharing power you know, in a responsible manner, as you said, Rachel, vis-a-vis you know, -vis the, the fundamental principles that we abide by? Well, I think it can indeed be maybe a bit more complex in terms of uh, decision-making and relinquishing power in, in conflict settings in the sense that there are also more dimensions related to do no harm and making sure that what we do is not going to have negative consequences. But when, when we talk about relinquish, relinquishing power, I'm wondering if maybe one first step that we could take is being more transparent about how we make decisions. Uh, because that's probably a first step in terms of, you know, when, when you are open about how you make decisions and why, then it's kind of a, a, a kind of self-regulating system that makes sure that you don't take um, you know, bad decisions or decisions that are only in your own interest. 
Um, let me just connect that. Um, the issue of transparency um, and and how you know we're able to exert change you know within within our own system that you mentioned, David, um, and I think as we had in in the video, um, it, it is urgent and non-negotiable for both executive and operational leadership, and I think we mentioned both because it's not about the grand eloquent statements you know, but also you know how those words you know translate into action, to integrate engagement and accountability at the core of operations. Um, quick reflection: When we did this launch uh, a couple of weeks ago, the launch of the paper in Geneva, we had Peter Maurer, the the president of the ICLC, um, you know, posing a, a very a very interesting and punchy question, you know, which I think we try to uh, unpack a little bit. So my question, you know, for you and I, and after for maybe a couple of you who are interested in in taking on, um, he said, well, that's that's. AAP, and he used the, the capital and the, and the inverted marks, that AAP is becoming a bureaucratic system where boxes are ticked, but nothing really changes. Personally, I think it has already become a little bit a system like that. That's your positive or your negative take on that? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the negative. Let's say it's the negative. Uh, I think it is becoming like that. And I think that there's, there's a lot of factors, though, that influence it. I mean, um, I do on one side recognize, again, that we haven't done enough and there's a lot that needs to be done. And we're still failing. I mean, you know, we've just done an assessment in Bangladesh you know, two months into the response and still more than 60% of the population said that they didn't feel they have the information they needed to make decisions. And they also said that they didn't feel that they had any ability to influence or talk to humanitarian organizations about their operations. So clearly the problem is there. At the same time we have all the, we have, you know, we have got better at coordinating and trying to share resources. Absolutely. So there is a CWC working group in the country, CWC. you know. Communication with communities working group in the country. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, there is, there is a recognition. I still believe that there is a strong recognition, especially in the field, that this is needed. And that, that if you don't do it, there are very strong risks for you as an organization, for your reputation, for your trust. And I think that there is more recognition at the higher level, if you want, more at the HQ level or operational level, that you know, we need to be more accountable. And that's also coming a little bit from the donors actually asking for more accountability. To me, what I see missing is the middle part, is the really how are you actually going to do it? So you know, it's not just about setting up a feedback mechanism. It's really discussed within an organization about how are you accountable to your own staff? How are you accountable to your constituency? How are you accountable to your beneficiary? So it is a much larger process, and I think that we, we kind of like got stuck a little bit into the like, oh, we're going to do accountability to affected population. That's the easy part. Let's set up a feedback mechanism and we get some feedback. But the old thinking about, okay, wait a minute, you're going to have to incorporate this into a much complex system. You're not just talking about bottom of the pyramids, a little you know, piece of paper that says, yes, I like this or not. You're talking about incorporating communities into the way you design projects, into the way you assess what the problem is, into the way you think about what is the right solution, regardless of what professionally you know it is the right solution, to what actually how would people themselves solve the problem and can we learn from how they would do it. So accountability kind of like becomes now a much larger um, kind of process. David, you are at the, at the real now within the SESC are trying to really construct or, and revisit, you know, how we are accountable to affected people. What, what's your take on, on, on your own particular experience? Well, I mean, it's true that anything we do in the humanitarian sector can very easily become a bureaucratic process and we do checklists and, and then, 
you know, we just burden our colleagues in the field who have plenty of things to do. So what I think we need to do is make sure that the, the, the objectives we have in terms of, of our approach to accountability to affected people is making sure that what we do is relevant, timely, effective, does no harm, uh, is well coordinated. And I think what we need to do is to apply these objectives to our work on AP and making sure that the tools we develop, the support we provide is also uh, with these, the user, the end users in mind. So our colleagues who are going to do this, how can uh, the framework we, we, we devise, all the tools we propose be of value to them, do no harm because suddenly we're burying them under a pile of, of additional work and delivers value to, to the work they have. I think that's how we're going to, to succeed. Um, you have a quick reaction? Yeah, maybe just Christina? a quick reaction to something that Nahi was saying. Um, you know, I think we have gotten better at understanding the communities in which we're working. I think we acknowledge that we have to be listening, that we have to be acting, as the, as the video said. But I just think we've got the positioning wrong. I think we still position ourselves in somewhat of a, an, a superior mm -hmm. position to those um, that we're working with. And so we're, it, it, it becomes that kind of unequal power dynamic always, no matter how good our systems and tools are, our processes. We have to actually think of ourselves as part of a wider array of players um, that come to these crisis contexts with their own capacities, their own knowledge, um, and they bring different things to the table than we do. It's about understanding what our legitimacy is in these contexts and not just assuming that we have power over over others when we when we're responding I want to talk about assumption and, and I think we we're moving into a, a section that we, we want to unpack a little bit is, is how well or we think we understand the context and I think what you just mentioned Christina is key because something that we had is is that we assume that we understand the concept much sorry the context much better than that that what we do um, um, and something that came clear in the, in the discussion paper that was that humanitarian organizations need to improve their capacity not only to assess needs, uh, but also analyze them together with local capacities, copy mechanisms, power dynamics, and, and the local information ecosystem. So, uh, again, uh, how, how well, and I think this particular topic about understanding context is, is particularly critical when, it, when you look at the whole urban you know, thing you know, that has reemerged you know, in the sector for the last you know, five years, maybe. How good do you think we are, you know, in understanding the context? And again, looking looking at you as someone working with local media organizations around the world. Um, I, again, <laughs> I feel like I'm always like the negative one here, but I also think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this. Uh, um, how, can, how can we get better? I think the question. I think, I think yeah. there's a recognition that we can do better. Great. I think the issue is how we can take it to the next level. And I think that taking it to the next level is really shifting the the narrative and the conversation from the giving people a voice to learning how to listen and really thinking that it's, again, I think it, it goes back to what Christina was saying. It's not about what where we position ourselves and what we give to them. Like, you know, we make ourselves accountable. It shouldn't be like that. We should have systems that make it possible for communities to hold us accountable. So again, for me, the the you know, the, and the shift is really like, you know, the people in front of you are not just defined as refugees or affected communities. They are defined as, you know, they have skills, they have, uh, you know, they have ideas, they have, you know, they bring something to the table and they can actually be part of the entire, uh, you know, response mechanism if we stop seeing them within the little cell that we've built around them and put them into that box that it's the affected community. So, in that sense, I think that there's a lot, a lot of work to do. Uh, on the other side, I think that, again, increasingly, we have situation where we have urban crisis or situation in which, in conflict, we are losing a lot of access, 
you know, increasingly to countries where and to communities that we want to support. And I think that in that sense, uh, you know, we, 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 are really, we, we really need to start listening better, even just thinking about the fact that, you know, for the first two months of deployment in Bangladesh, there were very, very few humanitarian organizations that could speak the language, meaning that people could not talk to their beneficiaries themselves. This is what uh, Translator Without Borders just called this week uh, the collective blind spot in the humanitarian yeah. sector. And I think you just touched on that, uh, Rachel. You, you, you've been there recently. What's understanding the context, communicating with people, listening, acting? How, how, good are, how good are we at truly understanding the people we work with? Well, I would say from my experience, fairly mixed. Um, I think there's lots of exciting potential to really start um, looking at things like accountability mechanisms or whatever, and stop using language that perhaps doesn't translate or make sense, like accountability mechanisms, talk about, you know, in a, in a slightly simpler way, but also co-create things. And to truly co-create something, you have to be willing to really tackle the, the power imbalances and work together. Um, I met um, a, a South Sudanese refugee when I was uh, in northern Uganda last year. And he, um, he was, we, we were in part of the big rhino camp settlement and got a long, long way to somewhere very remote to find this man who sat down and just started talking to me about sphere standards and he said well I know all this stuff you know when in, in South Sudan I worked on this that, and the other and I'm a refugee now I know all this stuff this is the kind of man that actually I, I wish we could have co-created our accountability system our monitoring and evaluation you know there, there was real potential there to work together and I hope we will that we can start doing these things okay that's a refugee situation and in conflict it becomes very tricky but I think we we underestimate the capacity if we're absolutely open and, and we lay it open and say what ideas are there how can we work together in a much more equal basis and then turning turning what we hear into action um, I think within the area we control we have to we have to really do something um, to use our influence um, I, I'm thinking of a, a, a project I've been working on which is looking at whether uh, it's with the Humanitarian Innovation Fund as to whether uh, lighting of sanitation facilities reduces GBV. We got quite astonishing figures from women about how much they don't use um, communal sanitation facilities, the kind of thing we create in every fast onset, in every emergency as the first phase. We create these communal sanitation facilities. I mean, in, in, in some places, 90% of women will use them. So we need to really take that evidence, what people are telling us, because the evidence came from people, um, and, and then start changing. Even if this is something that's a little bit like, you know, when you're driving a car in mud and, and you get in the tire tracks of the car before, I once did one of those off-road driving courses and the first person crashed into a tree. Every single one of us crashed into that same tree because the, the tire tracks got, got deeper and deeper. We need to get out of the tire tracks. Um, I think this connects, you know, with uh, something that we wanted to also uh, discuss um, in this initial conversation about trust, you know, and expectations. You know, the example he has put about this, this man that you met in the border with Uganda. At the core of his, what we saw, what we heard from different people is this, the centrality of, of building trust, both physically and digitally. This is meaning, you know, how people, how much people feel that they own, you know, what we do and how we do it with them, not just for them. Managing their expectations, which I think is, is a critical, you know, aspect. 
And, and I think, um, as, as David mentioned, and as it's been mentioned in the discussion, you know, how we translate all that listening into, into real action. I think listening is great, but you know, how, much I, how many times I can tell you what I need or what I want before you don't do anything to change that. Um, in armed conflicts, and let me look at David now, in armed conflict, this can be a, a little bit more complex for a number of you know, con contextual issues and, and, and so on. But lastly speaking, looking at trust, looking at translating, listening to action, what's, you know, what are the broken li links? You know, what, is, what is stopping us from translating what people are telling us again and again you know, into action? Simple question, David. Thank you, Jaco. Uh, <clears throat> I think maybe one, one element is the fact that, uh, you know, we always want to have, you know, the simple answers. Sometimes we do m make too many assumptions about uh, what people think, want, can, and that's maybe influencing what we do and the way we interact and the way we interpret what people are, are telling us. Uh, what is also sometimes problematic is that we make assumptions about the capacity of people to understand the constraints in which we are. And sometimes we don't, we say, oh, we're not going to, to, to ask them because then they are going to ask for something that we cannot deliver and that's going to create problems. Uh, but the reality is that often people realize they know what we can do. Uh, it's not because they're asking and we say no that they're necessarily going to be mad with us. You know, if you explain what is the issue, why you cannot do it, maybe who else can be involved, people do, do tend to, to understand that. And maybe to be also specific about the ICRC, uh, one of the elements that you know, we take confidentiality very seriously. Uh, and sometimes it can be a, a barrier in terms of, of reacting to what people are telling us or actually to, to even communicate internally uh, what people are raising as issues and, and making sure that we act on it if a colleague from another department uh, is the person who needs to be involved. So sometimes even just like having this, uh, this uh, openness and transparency internally uh, could help to, to better react. Christina, from your, from your research and, and understanding the issue, what's, what is stopping us from translating listening to action? So for me, there are three, and in, in particular in armed, in armed conflicts, there are three things. One is our mandates. I think we focus too much um, in terms of our remits and our mandates and what we are meant to be doing as organizations versus actually thinking about the problems we're trying to solve. And I think if we were to think about coordination and our actions in terms of you know, coming together in, in, in groups of people that are skilled to solve a problem versus skilled to provide a particular service, that I don't think we'll run into um, so many of the blockages in terms of listening and understanding what people want and need um, versus uh, always going in with what we have to give. I think we have a problem with hubris, and this is this idea of self-importance I, I talked about earlier, that somehow we are just, we are impartial, um, we are highly expert and technical, and local organizations or others are unskilled and somehow inferior and partisan. Um, and, you know, we did this study in, um, on access in Syria and in Ukraine, and we looked at who gets access in these types of situations, whether it's better to be a local organization or, or an international organization. And what we found is actually it doesn't, 
we all face the sim similar constraints in conflict settings, and it doesn't really matter if you're local or international, um, that we all you know, have different problems in, in, in different contexts. But the one underlying factor that gave um, organizations access in, in, in those two conflict settings was good programming. So if we stick to doing good programming that legitimizes us, that gives people what they need, then we will get access. It doesn't matter who we are, what labels we associate with ourselves. Um, the third thing is this, this idea of exceptionalism which I also got into earlier, and this is where I think humanitarian principles come into play. In conflict settings, absolutely humanitarian principles should underpin the way that we all work and the way that we should aspire to act. But as we also all know from working in our organizations, humanitarian working in conflict settings means balancing those humanitarian principles as we work. So why then would we apply these um, you know, stricter, stricter rules for organizations that might not be principled, that might not be humanitarian in inverted commas, um, but that actually would be really placed to best place to help who we should listen to in terms of providing the type of assistance that would fulfill the needs of, of crisis affected populations. Anna, you have some comments and I think you, are, you at the interviews are trying to interpret and translate some of these voices coming, you know, from affected people into what humanitarians could and should do with some of those. What's, what's your experience? What's, what do you think is stopping us from, from taking action on? I mean, I, I mean, I agree with everything that Christina said, to be honest, and I think it really sums up what the, what the issues are. I, I think that we, again, we go back to this issue about the fact of letting it go, of not con trying to control the conversation, of, of, of you know, really uh, trying to listen to, to what people are saying, but also being able to, to, to kind of like accept the idea that what they say, it's not necessarily what we want, because the issue is also that we ask feedback and we, you know, we say that we want to be held accountable, but then, you know, we are not willing neither us nor donors for what it comes to go back and say, you know what, this $2 million project of like, you know, I don't know, building latrines in this way, actually we can't do it. We should do something completely different. So we go back to the drawing board and we start again designing the project from the beginning. Let's be honest, culturally speaking, we're not ready to accept it and we don't have enough systems that allow us to actually have that flexibility. But that's particular problem that I just mentioned connects back to the issue of we actually didn't understand what the issue is. So we are trying to really, you know, design a particular program, raise some money when, you know, by the time we are finished with that process, actually, this is not what it's meant, you know, to be. People don't want it. People don't need it, as you said. Rachel? You're just nodding. I mean, I'm <laughs> no, no, I'm nodding. I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing. Uh, okay. So um, let's, uh, let's uh, move to the, to the next section. And I think this is something that, um, that I think is, um, is particularly critical, also looking into how connected, hyper-connected everything is, uh, has, is becoming over the years. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we also, we also wanted to examine during this, during this uh, research was looking or trying to understand, you know, how humanitarian organizations are, are increasingly becoming data companies. Um, we constantly hear about digital transformation and the sector needs, data protection, privacy. Uh, at the same time, the Cambridge Analytica and, and the Facebook story that, that brought here um, a few weeks ago also raises once again a number of important issues. Um, and I think this has been discussed as well in the, in the humanitarian sector, you know, most recently. How equipped we are uh, today to deal with the, with the ethical and legal responsibilities that come with, you know, with this digital shift. You know, we are able to collect, you know, registration data from people in, you know, different programs, you know, how, how good we are, we are at that. And maybe I'm, I'm, I'm going to start, you know, David, what's, what's your take? 
I think probably as a sector, uh, we're not very mature in terms of how we, you know, understand, collect, analyze data. Probably that there's a lot of data that we collect that we shouldn't uh, because it just uh, gets stored somewhere and never used. Uh, and some data that we should be collecting, we don't. So I think there is a, a degree of maturity that needs to come in terms of understanding what is useful, uh, having the tools to actually analyze it uh, and use it. And, and within the ICRC, I, that's something that we have recognized we need to, to be working on. Uh, there's a huge uh, uh, project to actually digitalize operations uh, that is going to, to, to be a long-term effort because uh, uh, it's something that, that will significantly alter the way the way that we work. And I think we need to be aware that, yes, there are risks when you, you work uh, more with uh, data and digital, uh, but we also need to not necessarily use different standards or, or, or benchmarks for uh, reviewing the way we work on digital than we do on other, uh, on other issues, because otherwise it's just going to slow us down and not allow us to, to move forward. Uh, so yeah, that's that's uh, one of the things that uh, um, <clears throat> that we can do, and also another thing that that we are doing at the ICRC is uh, is uh, reviewing the approach to contact centers, because what we need to recognize is that it's great if you if you have the systems, the business intelligence to visualize the data, but if you don't have the data, then you know there is no use. So with contact centers, we're trying to more systematically uh, uh, find ways to receive and proactively go collect uh, data, feedback, perceptions from affected communities to better inform uh, our, uh, our programming and be better able to respond to, to the feedback we get. I know that you, uh, we've been discussing about this issue for quite some time, probably a number of years. So what's your, what's your particular view on, on this subject? Well, I think, again, I think that there is a broader recognition that we're not ready. There is a broader recognition that we need some rules, we need some frameworks, we need at least to start a conversation about what is, what, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. But I also think that, you know, we are not alone in this because I think that the issue that just happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica shows that we're not the only one that are, are not ready. We're not the only one that didn't envision probably fully what the consequences of the digital era, whatever you want to define it, is. Um, but I think that in that sense, maybe because this is, according to me, speaks very strongly to the do no harm principle. I actually have seen way more conversation about <laughs> this than I've seen conversation about the practical framework on how you actually then implement those legal you know, frameworks and, and regulation that you want to put in place. So I actually am less pessimistic than, um, you know, than in a lot of other issues. That's good to know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think there is the, the, in the discussion paper we also uh, there is an emphasis that we we gather from the people that we spoke with about our need to also collaborate in a more meaningful manner with the private sector and also influence in you know, other way the way they do you know business particularly when they want to you know when they're involved in a in, in you know humanitarian crisis. Um, a quick question uh, maybe for you both you know um, Christine and Rachel if you could borrow one thing from the private sector that will help the humanitarian sector, what that would be? In terms of working with them or in terms of a principle that they use? What would be a practical thing so that you see? Actually, if I could borrow that particular page from the, from the business book, that would be? 
so I guess for me it would be um, prioritizing the user experience. Um, mm -hmm. We did this this project here at HPG um, over the last two years called um, Constructive Deconstruction, Reimagining the Global Humanitarian System. And what we did is we took, we used this tool called design thinking to reimagine what um, the system would look like. Now design thinking is a tool that's been used by Ikea and Starbucks and all these kind of client-oriented organizations because what it does is it takes the user, it puts them at the center of systems design. And so what you do is you design a system to emphasize that user experience, whatever that experience you want that user to have. So when we took the humanitarian system and we prior, we put the, the, the end user, so not the donor in this case, but the, the actual affected person in the middle of our systems design, it was amazing what we found. And it was amazing what that system then looked like if we prioritized their experience with the system. And what that looked like was that you know life-saving assistance, important, life-sustaining assistance more important but perhaps the most important thing for them um, and we interviewed several people like 100 people in protracted crisis situations the most important thing for them and the most the thing they wanted most out of the humanitarian system was a sense of opportunity mm -hmm. and that is not something that we think about in our traditional responses how can we um, provide people who require humanitarian assistance with a sense for the a sense of the future an aspiration for what their life could be like in another you know when this all subsides and I don't think we think about that enough. Rachel. I think that's really interesting um, and, and I think that kind of innovation is something that I'd really I, I would like to pull more on um, but not just at the global level not just with these big big things because when you go around whether it's refugee camps IDP camps very um, uh, deprived communities, what you see is a huge amount of business innovation there. It might be small scale, it might be localized, but there's an awful lot happening at that level as well that we could um, draw on and draw on if we, actually if we have the, the really good community engagement. So I think we should look big picture, you know, the, the kind of thing that Christina's talking about, but not cut out that, that kind of small scale innovation. You know, markets spring up, people are doing all kind of businesses, uh, all sorts of interesting things that we, we, we often bypass. And I think I'd, I'd, I'd want to pick on that too. Can I add one thing, please, that I wish we would take maybe from, not everyone in the private sector, but uh, uh, the, maybe the best one, to fail fast. When there's something, a working group or anything that has outlived its usefulness, <laughs> kill it. That would free up so much time so for everyone. Fast or clean, quick, clean quickly, no? One or the other. Yeah. No? <laughs> Fail fast. Okay. Um, I think we also have. Uh, I think it will be uh, very interesting as well. Not necessarily to to compare natural disasters, you know, with with man-made, you know, with conflict and, and violence. But I think we we very interested in the, the the dynamics of what what we, what we can learn, you know, when it comes to collaboration and coordination in natural disasters that can be applicable to armed conflict. And I, you know, I think natural disasters bring a number of opportunities, whether it's bringing together the government, the military workers, um, um, the private sector, the media. Um, in armed conflict, it doesn't, it doesn't happen you know, in, this, in the same spirit for a number of reasons that we might, we might not necessarily want to, uh, to mention, to, I mean, to mention, to elaborate, but you know, those relations are put to test. So, but what can we learn you know, from uh, in armed conflict and violence when it comes to interagency inter collaboration? What models of collaboration should we further explore? Anahi. Well, I mean, again, it's like, 
I mean, I'll say what model for collaboration, because that would mean that we do actually have a model for collaboration that works very well even outside of the um, conflict, which is not the case. We know that. So generally speaking, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. In conflict, there's, there's, an, uh, there's a set of extra layers that makes it more difficult to communicate to people, to engage people, and also to bring to the table all of the different actors. What I've seen as working uh, and I've seen it in, in, in you know, the, uh, in the one context where I've, where I've actually s seen a lot of very strong collaboration in between all of these actors, um, you know, has been because there was a very strong need. Because at a certain point, neither the, you know, the, uh, the military from the peacekeeping mission, nor humanitarian organization, nor anyone else was actually able to engage the community because the community had lost entirely trust into everything and everybody. At that point, there was a need to rebuild that trust, and that worked, because that brought everybody around the table sitting down and saying, OK, now it's time. We try to figure out what's happening, and we try to figure out how we rebuild that trust as a collective system. But as far as you know, reaching the bottom to be able to come up again, I haven't seen a lot of other models and mechanisms that work. And I think that one of the reasons is also that I truly believe that there is a parallel identity crisis that is going on within DPKO and peacekeeping and peacebuilding missions, generally speaking, and within the UN, if you want. And I think that these two things are going in parallel, the lack of coordination and capacity of working together and thinking about you know, how to work together, I think, is part of how do we create a better system. Christina, if, if I can ask you for a second to, to put your former Ocha hat on, uh, what, what's, what's your particular take on when it comes to this to this, to this issue, international well, collaboration well, and conflict? So we were thinking also a lot about coordination when we were redesigning our system. Um, and, you know, with my Ocha hat on and my experience of having coordinated a lot, um, you know, I think the sh we, we need to be thinking of making a shift from coordination for coordination's sake to coordination in a much more modular and flexible way. So again, coordination around problem solving. So you're not all at the table because you have the mandate to be there because you have the, uh, the, the hubris to be there. You're around the table because you have, there's a particular problem to solve and you have something um, you have what it takes to help solve that problem. Um, that means being much more modular. That means being much more flexible. That means, um, you know, we, we interviewed the head of the 9-11 um, response in New York City as part of our system redesign project. And they have similar interagency collaboration problems in New York City around the fire department and the police department and all the various agencies there. And he said the thing that helped the 9-11 response so um, dramatically was to kind of just eliminate all of those agency hats and just sit down and think of like who has the, the logistics capabilities, the know-how, the expertise around the particular problems that that emergency um, posed. And I think even in in a conflict situation, you've got very, very complex situations. But if you break it down by what problems we're trying to solve, I think those relationships will be much more um, easy to, to, to mitigate and, and to work through. Um, we saw this in the refugee crisis in Europe, where you saw you know, spontaneous networks coalitions of the willing popping up to solve problems you know in Greece um, in Hungary in different places around the world because uh, you know the, the system itself wasn't there um, and the people sprung up and and brought the expertise that they had to bear around solving specific problems Rachel you want to add to uh, to this uh... Uh, just to to agree very much with that about being modular being flexible and we all know that a lot of the coordination depends on individuals and you have an individual leave or you have a gap and then things fall apart and I think it's, it's drawing on what's working and not being stuck by a system that says these people have to be at the table. 
Um, at the same time, uh, at the same time, I think um, I mean you you seem to point out again back to what, how you started uh, the event. You know, this is an issue of how the business model you know functions and, and this function. You know, what I have to offer beyond what my teacher, the color my teacher is on, on what is not, um, and and you know. We're going to bring to an end, you know, the discussion before we open to to Q and A with the audience. But obviously, we don't want to we don't want to finish without you know giving a, a prominent space, you know, to to the role of donors. Um, and I hit, this is maybe an issue of, of carrot and sticks, you know, what is bigger and what is not. Um, how much responsibility? And let me start with you, Christina. How much responsibility should donors take? for driving a delivery and output mindset in humanitarian action while still asking us to be people-centric and flexible. Yeah, so I think, you know, donors... Um, are, there, are there any donors in the room, by the way? Just to make sure that they have the opportunity to also defend themselves. No. no. Okay, Christina, sorry. No, I think donors, um, you know, despite the fact that we're talking a lot about now new entrants, new donors, new new types of funding in the humanitarian sector, I think our traditional donors are always going to have a prominent role to play. And so for that reason, they do have a lot of leverage um, in the way that this business model operates. Um, and so I think they are part of, they are a key lever, they're a key pivot um, around which we should be making these changes. Um, we at um, HPG are doing the evaluation of the ground bargain mm -hmm. this year um, and I think it still remains to be seen how much donor has donor behavior has actually changed based on those um, ground bargain commitments so watch that space we'll be out with that in June um, but uh, you know I suspect that their behavior hasn't changed quite so much um, I do think that as I said they're a key pivot they are the key to you know us to funding us for outcomes to funding us for performance um, to funding us uh, to be that flexible modular uh, sector that, that we could become. But on the other hand, I don't think we should leave the rest of us off the hook. I think, mm -hmm. you know, donors themselves have their own um, barriers, their own constituencies. They are also not monolithic. They have, you know, d disagreements uh, within their own organization. So I think as other types of humanitarian organizations, the onus is also upon us to be able to, you know, point donors in the right direction, to, to hold them to account for the services that we um, that we would like to provide. If we want to be more accountable, if we want to be more modular, if we want to be to listen more um, in in different ways, then we have to, you know, press our donors to invest in those capacities mm -hmm. within ourselves. I don't think I think donors are a key leverage point. I don't think that leaves us off the hook. Will this me to uh, something, and uh, I, I would like m maybe you both, you know, David and Rachel, to touch on um, connecting to the issue of ticking boxes and so on. And AP is, is is AP just a question of donor compliance? Uh, how much responsibility do they have as well on, on you know ensuring that we are as accountable as we promise ourselves to be from the very beginning? Look, I don't think it is or should be an issue of donor compliance. Certainly, if you know it helps, it helps me when I can tell my colleagues, look, you know. We have pressure from our donors to advance on AP, so you know sometimes it helps to get some people on board. Uh, but primarily, I think if we just fall into the trap of making that a compliance issue, then you know we can become very good at just finding the shortest way to tick the box and actually not act on on substance. So we need to really make sure that what we do on on accountability, on community engagement really is not just the, the kind of compliance issue, not just the moral obligation we have to, 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 uh, to do it, but also an issue of program quality and understanding that better understanding the problems people face, the needs they have, 
and also importantly the, the like disaggregating the needs based on gender on age on disability to understand what is the diversity of needs as well uh, that's also going to help us make our response more effective more timely more relevant uh, and i think that's that's uh, something that needs to feature very prominently in the discussion um rachel um if you know if we have you know the room was filled with with donors right now um, what would be the one thing that you will ask them to, to help, you know, you know what, would you, what would you recommend them? Well, I think the compliance thing, I agree, it's, it can be useful, but really if it becomes a, a, a checklist, you'll do it at the lowest level. And it's about what we believe in, and, and our culture and how we want to interact with other human beings. I think what I, I mean, maybe it's just what I've been doing over the past couple of weeks, but cut the bureaucracy. Um, I, I mean, lots and lots of uh, really bureaucratic, inflexible systems, I think, really not just uh, create huge burdens, but they actually take away the ability to, to be much more flexible, to be adaptable, um, to really work with people. So cut the bureaucracy, that's um, what I would say. What, what, what that would mean practically? Well, practically, we've just been involved in a really big project where we were working with local NGOs who were really within their communities. They didn't have a lot of connectivity. They didn't have a lot of ability to write big, long reports. And, you know, those things with the drop-down boxes and it's never quite the right box yeah. and you're compromising. And so what we saw our role as was trying to protect those um, local partners from that bureaucracy and they reported um, to us using, in, in one case, just using WhatsApp and they just did real-time little messages, you know, um, sent them to us and then we were able to translate some of that into the donor requirements but act as a buffer for them. What I'd like to see is that we could have used our time perhaps a bit more constructively if there had been less of that kind of sometimes feels endless bureaucracy and and things to fill in. Anahi, what would you, what would be your uh, your uh, your top priority? Well, I would say um, you know, following actually on what Rachel said, you know, I think that certain donors are making an effort to cut uh, some of the bureaucracy and to kind of like try to create more coordinated or centralized or common system if you want, for example, for accountability. I I am personally very concerned right now that some of those systems are a little bit, you know, in, an, in a way solving the problems that the donors have of not wanting to give small pots of money to a lot of organization to kind of like create a system that it's accountable, but it's not actually being as effective as a lot of donors think on the ground when it comes to try to centralize or create one common system where everybody else you know, it's supposed to be part of. There is a fantastic uh, opportunity for us donors and people implementing accountability and feedback mechanisms to coordinate very well and to do you know systems that are built together but there is also a very big risk of kind of like creating that like oh there's a common feedback mechanism out there and i can keep doing my stuff down here and keep you know business as usual so that would be something that i would ask donor to keep a little bit more attention on i think that there's some people who are also um, saying as well um, in this particular topic maybe the stick needs to be bigger than the carrot, unfortunately. And I think it's going back to what you mentioned, David. Um, so is there any credit that we can give us to donors on putting pressure on us to actually be more accountable? Because as we were saying at the beginning, I mean, this is certainly not a new topic. So what, what is changing maybe is that, you know, our feet are, you know, close to the fire now. Christina, what do you think? 
So what other mechanisms can we be using? Yeah. Can they be using, uh, what sticks do they have? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we agree that Beyond we, we don't want to be we don't want to be bullied into uh, into situations, correct? Uh, but what are what are the stakes? So what are what are the incentives? I'm not calling the stakes, you know, that that they still can work, you know. No, I I think the the language has to be much more about investment and investment mm -hmm. as in us as organizations, investment in others as 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 other types of organizations. I think it has to be about. Um, you're redefining success so that the reason why we're able to raise money or that they pay us to do things is not because um, it's not for market share, it's not for expansion, it's to gain, it's to, to reposition ourselves into roles um, where we are best able to operate and where we have the legitimacy to operate in, in crisis context. So it's it's redefining success in terms of, of being able to reach out and be in able in being able to establish partnerships and being able to solve problems as close to the ground as possible. If I would talk to a donor today, I would say put the money where the problem is. Put the money as close to the ground as possible. Um, and don't let us get away with spending that money um, on situations, on mechanisms, um, on tools that aren't focused specifically on those problems. Um, it's uh, 1506 uh, here in London, so we're going to have the next uh, 20, 25 minutes for questions. Quick recap from my side. Thanks very much you know, for the, for the discussion. Uh, We've, talking, we've spoken about humanitarian business model being, you know, something that we need to revisit in terms of redefining, you know, what success means. We've talking about how we understand and we don't understand the context and the problems. Um, we've looked at, at to how accountability is still largely an optional issue that requires change management, you know, within our own institutions. The issue around power, you know, and language, I think is something that Rachel, that you've been, you've been, uh, um, you know, st stressing, you know, the importance about. Um, and I think. I will, I will pick it as well before opening to discussions here in the audience, the, the, what Christina mentioned about the self-importance, self, uh, self-inflected importance that we have in our, own, in our own sector. So without more delay, I would love to take, you know, maybe two, three questions, you know, from the audience. Um, I just have, you know, a brief, uh, a brief, you know, ask. First and foremost, uh, identify yourself, um, you know, name and organization, speak to the mic. And last but not least, a question ends with a question mark. So let's make sure that we ask a question, uh, because there are a lot of people as well in the room and a lot of people as well online. So who wants to be, who is interested in the in questions? So one, two, three, maybe. Thank you. And I indicate you know, who, you, who you want your question, and we'll try to do justice to it. Hi, my name's Zahed Youssef. Um, I thought it was really interesting when you showed the first um, video, and it talked about, in conflict-affected areas, how there's this breakdown of trust. So breakdown of trust within communities, between different communities, and also between state systems and citizens. And you also talked about it, Nihan, you talked about it, Christina, about this need for trust and building trust in there. I'm, I'm missing trust. the question mark right now. Yeah, and so my question is, um, is uh, we've also been talking here about accountability and how we should be we should be either accountable to our beneficiaries or beneficiaries need to demand more accountability from the humanitarian actors. But actually, instead, should we not be looking at how beneficiaries are accountable to each other? Because it's through building accountability to each other, we're going to build trust, which is the essential element of building, of addressing these issues of conflict. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Anthony Brock. 
Um, going back to the point about being able to talk to ordinary people, for example, in the camps in Bangladesh, that, that came up a couple of times, and hear about people's needs and also uh, people's desire for opportunity, which I think which got, got mentioned, I wondered whether the panel felt that there might be a gap around hearing ordinary people's political views. I know this clashes with the humanitarian sector, so perhaps it's not going to come from that sector. But, for example, the plight of the Rohingya has been discussed extensively in international media, but we don't really hear from the Rohingya themselves. Yes. So, sorry, what's, what's the question? So the question is whether there's a, there's a gap around uh, hearing Okay, question there, thank you. Hi, my name's Ellie, I work at the International Rescue Committee, but I do work in humanitarian advocacy, so I'm not so familiar with programming. Um, but in my experience, the best way to mainstream an approach effectively is to show that it works. And I would like to know from the panel, anybody, um, the best example you've seen of affected people-centered programming that works, almost if you were to split test against a program where you hadn't consulted affected communities and demonstrating that, that the affected people-centered approach worked better. Excellent. Um, let's, can we start from here? Best example on people-centered programming? Anahi? Anahi? Um, for us, at least, it's our program in um, in South Sudan, in uh, um, the POCs, which is the Protection of Civilian Camps managed by the UN. We have set up a system where, basically, we came in as technical advisor to the to uh, groups of uh, community members um, that we uh, selected and trained on producing and uh, producing information for the communities themselves and to be able to understand and work within the humanitarian system to bring feedback back to the, to the organization that could respond to those. So we basically um, you know, came in with the expertise of being a media development organization, an organization that does humanitarian information. And uh, um, we uh, worked directly with them to design the program, to think about how we could distribute the program, what would be the best format for the program. And then we slowly uh, you know, work with them so that right now the majority of our projects are self-managed by the uh, people living in the camps themselves. They have access to the cluster meetings, they have access to the humanitarian organization, they have access to uh, UNMIS and, uh, um, you know, and uh, um, peacekeeping operation managing the camp, and they are basically creating this platform where they bring the views and the opinions and the communities themselves into the way the response is being organized. Now, as a disclaimer to that, I think that one of the reasons why that project is working very well is because it's separate and very confined camps where you know the logistical issue of creating an accountability system within a geographically you know uh, controlled area is way easier if you think about building a system like that in an urban area i you know it would have to be designed in, in a completely different way uh, for me it would have to be something that i think you mentioned in here which is our community protection committees um, in eastern drc um, there's lots online about them, so I won't go into too much detail, but they're community committees um, in conflict areas that liaise with security actors and various power brokers within the communities. Um, and um, they do things like uh, negotiate for uh, people who've been abducted to return, but they also act as a platform um, for the community and to feed 
into Oxfam as well, into our advocacy around DRC. Um, and we, we're able to feed back to them about things that we've done. And we actually have um, something that's cited in here. Uh, we went back to some of these committees um, three years on from actually finishing supporting them to see what had happened. And um, it was probably the most heartwarming thing I've read um, in our work in Eastern DRC to see the gains that have been sustained in terms of those community committees and things, particularly around gender, around women's rights, women's representation. Um, and that, for me, is something that I think really worked, that has accountability at its heart, but actually has lots of aspects around it. Um, I would like to ask David as well, but I would like to ask you, do you think that the sector lacks inspiring examples of where things work or don't work? I didn't hear any from the panel. No, no examples of effective programming were mentioned. Mm -hmm. I know potentially the discussion went in different directions, but that's, if I'm a donor and I want to know, I want to take this beyond compliance, I want it mm -hmm. to be Yeah, I mean, maybe it's an issue of complex. I think, I think, at least the way I think we see it within the ICS is, it's not necessarily about you know the donors. I think it's more importantly how can we inspire in our own colleagues to do things differently. And I think people, you know, we're not interested necessarily in the why or the or the what. You know, I think we we get it that people want to do. It. The question is how, as Anna he was mentioning, how we can do it better. And I think this is where we feel. Documenting, you know, evidence and you know, documenting good practices. There's nothing like best practice. Uh, we believe. Uh, I think it's important as well to to see, you know, what can work in other places. So I would like to maybe Christina, you you wanted to to take a step at that one. Uh, David, we haven't forgotten about mutual accountability and hearing, you know, on uh, political views of uh, of people. So we'll touch on that in a minute. But I think we wanted to bring a little bit of color, you know, if I may say so, to the to discussion. So thanks for your question, Christina. Let me just take this in a slightly different direction because I'm going to give you two examples that have nothing to do with the aid sector. Um, so these are courtesy of my colleague and friend Paul Curian, who's just written a paper for us about networked humanitarianism, which will be out in a few weeks' time. But basically, the two examples of a, are a WhatsApp group in Somalia, a thing called Daryl, where a bunch of um, communities in Somalia who have been affected by drought actually communicate with one another via WhatsApp to be able to give to one another what they need, depending on the, the time of year um, and depending on the severity of the drought. Another quick example is something called Supplies, which is a, a network that sprung up um, during the protests in Terrier Square in Cairo, where you had lots of people who were injured from a lot of the, you know, the explosions, um, and where you had ambulance services, people who had medical equipment, doctors, um, people who had gauze and other sort of things, um, all coming together via um, some kind of a social, you know, I don't know if it was Facebook or WhatsApp or something, coming together on social media to determine what it was that was needed where and actually delivering those services um, in real time in Tahrir Square. So what do those examples tell us? Number one, that you don't necessarily need intermediaries to do good coordination. Um, you don't need intermediaries like us to be be deciding what people want or mitigating um, people's opinions of that. Um, and perhaps then we should be investing as donors, as response organizations, in developing those networks. Um, is, and is, is it those networks that are going to solve those problems for us and not necessarily all these preconceived notions that we have of programs? Please, I think, I think we might need your mic because otherwise we might not, colleagues uh, online might not hear you. Thanks. Those are really great examples, and I guess what they also demonstrate is that's using very simple technology. WhatsApp exists already. It wasn't designed for that purpose, and I think we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that we need to divine, design new, sophisticated, innovative technologies to bring to communities, you know, to help, when actually we should just go to what's being used already. Meet our audiences where they are. Uh, 
David, you have an, another example you want to share? Uh, I don't want to share an example because I think what, what your question is, is going towards is also to say, okay, you know, we have all these good practice and we assume that this is going to improve what we do. Uh, but how do we know that this is actually the case? And that's, that's uh, I think, an important point. Uh, and that's why, on the, on the one hand side, the, the core humanitarian standard is trying to put on the one hand the good practice, the nine commitments, and on the other hand also to uh, have the quality criteria which are largely based on feedback from affected communities to say, okay, do you actually find that what is being done is relevant, is timely, effective, so that you can actually challenge the validity of the, of the commitments and make sure that, you know, if needed, you adapt it. And we're trying to do something similar in the ICRC with uh, the, the kind of guiding principles and making sure that we don't just say, okay, yeah, we ticked all the boxes, but we don't know whether it's making things more relevant. We're trying to, you know, correlate that and make sure that uh, what we advise our colleagues to do is actually making a difference. Thank you. Let me try to connect a question, you know, from, from this side of the room with a question, you know, that we got online from Ellie Kem from Translator with a Borders. I think um, Kelly is interested in, in, in well, he, she wants to know, um, you know, how we can, you know, what, what is being done to ensure, let me read, sorry, what is being done to ensure we are communicating with individuals and not just with the better educated and more powerful members of our community. And I guess that also looks into, you know, how we communicate and what actually we choose to listen or not to listen, um, if I may interpret a little bit your question. So maybe you both have been in, in, in Bangladesh recently, so Rachel, I don't know if, if I can start with you, trying to answer your question on the, on the right. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think from my side, I would say that it's a role we can play in bringing people together. So if we have groups that we are sponsoring and supporting, it's thinking about how people can come together in those groups. I'm thinking about groups we've had perhaps with refugees and host communities together, where they've had very different views and they've been able to actually work towards something that's perhaps a little less of a divisive issue, and that has helped them build those relationships of trust so that they can work more closely um, together. Uh, oh, shall I answer or say something on the other questions? Yeah, of questions? course. Of course. Um, so, and, and this builds on what Ellie's brought up. So, that talking to people about political things, I mean, it depends, I guess, uh, whether you were talking about party political, which I think we'd probably all be quite wary of, but if it's political things like return and so on, um, yeah, then, then certainly those sort of opinions. I mean, in one way, it's a political issue. Um, return to uh, uh, um, Myanmar, but for many people, it, it's also just a need and part of their situation. So I'm not sure I would necessarily immediately have called it a political thing. Perhaps I should have. Um, but yes, I think we absolutely should talk to people about that, but carefully as well, because uh, I know I've been in some situations, I'm thinking some camps in Darfur, where you talk about return and that actually could bring about huge violence and, and so on. So with great, great care. And on, on Ellie, communicating with individuals, ab absolutely, I, I, I think it's, we have a responsibility to look at who we're communicating with and really think who are we not communicating with and why. And I know for Ellie, one of the big issues would be language and, and that was such a, a, a difficulty in, in speaking yep. to, to women in, in Bangladesh. Um, so obviously the work that Translators Without Borders do is very Precious. important in that. Um, 
but yeah, we think about who's not in the room, who's not at the table, who we've inadvertently perhaps excluded. Anahi, can I can I ask you on the question of mutual accountability and what what can we do or cannot do? And 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 I, and I will also I think we're talking about language. I think maybe it's, it's, this is all news, but the word beneficiary probably is dead, you know, or should have been dead, you know, a long time ago. Um, so. How does, you know, what's your take on this issue of mutual well, accountability? It's an interesting question because the issue is like, it's not our role to, to kind of like define what accountability is and then teach it to the local population. I mean, I think we go back to that issue, right? I think that different communities and different cultures and in different contexts have already their own idea of what accountability is because, you know, these people come from structures that may be completely different from others, but they're still structures and structures that normally they have created themselves and then may work one way or another, but if those structure will change, will change as an outcome of the community choosing to change the structure or not. So actually, when it comes to the mechanism that the communities use to call it regulate themselves, I would say that we shouldn't have any role, um, you know, but there is one thing that I think we can do. And, you know, at least from, you know, my organization, it is the mission of the organization I work for. But for me, when you're talking about, you know, accountability to each other, but also when you talk about the political issues is, for me, is the importance of the role of local media that we still have not recognized and we're still not putting, you know, as part, as a very important part of the information ecosystem during emergencies and, and, and especially in conflict. If we are talking about, you know, making sure that communities have accountability systems or we're talking about the issue that communities have a place where to discuss political issue because one way or another all of the emergency we work in are political emergencies, you know, for me the point is can we actually support the, the natural platform that exists in the country, which is most of the time is local media, to create a healthy environment where people can have that conversation. And that for me is a role that media development organizations, you know, try to do, you know, all the time. Internews does it, Hirondel does it in his own way, you know, BBC Media Action also. So I think that there's a, there's a lot that can be done in that sense, but it's more supporting the already existing structure that allow people to actually have those conversations. Um, there are more questions in the audience, and I would like to take. I also want to bring a question here from Chris, from his online, uh, the humanitarian grand challenge. Maybe I think I can think of you, Christina. Uh, how much time slash effort do agencies spend reporting to people affected by conflict compared to time effort do agencies spend reporting to donors? Who are we all more accountable to? I have no idea how much time uh, they spend, but so I mean, based on the you know the points that we've Chris, all been we don't making. We have the figures right now. We'll get back to you. However, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a research point. Um, no, but I think you know what I was saying before. I think that the way that our incentive structures are set up um, is does not allow us. We, it does not allow us the time to be investing that kind of time and energy into um, into being accountable to affected people or to be accountable to anybody other than our donors. And I think that's also a matter, and, you know, I think we could lay that at the feet of the donors. They don't invest in us to, do, to be accountable in any other way. Do we have, can we take the time, do we have um, the peer review systems, as you were saying, to be able to, to, to field uh, feedback from them, to do something, to listen, to actually listen and do something and act on that feedback? No, we don't because we're actually not resourced in order to be able to do that. So, I, you know, I would expect that it would be uh, less time spent reporting or, or being accountable to affected people. I would expect that if we were given the resources and the time to be allowed to do that, then, you know, I think there's a lot of goodwill out there to do I so. I can imagine there's consensus on this one. So uh, one question from here, one question from there in the room. Another two questions there. So please, briefly. 
Could you introduce yourself? Hi, Marion Casey Maslin um, from the CDAC Network. Thank you very much. I have uh, two questions. I want to. Um, With question mark, right? <laughs> One With question mark. Very yeah. big question marks. And Good. the first actually to you, Hako, mm -hmm. and to David. So um, ICRC has a long history of having, well, you have a duty, a legal duty as ICRC to disseminate to uh, people affected by crisis, especially in conflict, uh, through uh, international humanitarian law, and especially the rules of IHL. So you have a long history of engaging with communities and communicating uh, on IHL, which I believe, uh, um, correct me if I'm wrong, ICRC has that obligation, that legal duty. Have you learned anything from that, that actually you could bring to the wider community in terms of our comms aid discussions? And number two, we have a huge uh, credibility issue in the NGO sector currently. Um, and we all know there's too many of us, and we all know we have very different levels of quality and accountability. Is it time for us to reconsider the human rights obligations of NGOs, especially when it comes to the right to information, et cetera, et cetera, and to reconsider, we talk about state responsibility for human rights, we talk now about corporations. Is that a new issue? Is that an issue we should reopen? It's already out there, but perhaps this is the time. It might also reduce the number of NGOs. It's, three tw it's 326 that's as well. So that's a question. Um, Quick, please, and after we see how much time we have to address. Uh, very quick question. Yeah. Um, so I'm Christina Almon. I'm from uh, New York University, Shanghai. Um, I was wondering, it's more of a clarification. When you say donors <coughs> should push NGOs or organizations to uh, invest in accountability, is, does that mean that they should just push them to implement systems, which then has a danger of becoming a bureaucratic burden and sort of may not lead to any change, or should they actually make their donations sort of contingent on positive outcomes after these systems have been implemented? Obviously, these are like, there's def different frozen constants, so I was wondering what your take was. Last one there. Thanks. James Corey from Wilton Park. Uh, two very brief questions in relation to the digital issues that mm -hmm. Jacobo raised. Um, Firstly, I'm wondering, are there any agencies that are making progress in offering conflict-affected people and community organisations access to some of the big data that agencies now hold and are thereby uh, uh, grappling with some of the data protection and privacy issues that that entails? Um, and secondly, we're, we're seeing a very rapid emergence of online platforms that offer, that, that promise to directly connect donors at all scales mm -hmm. with community-based organizations. That obviously raises uh, huge risks in relation to accountability. How are we going to preempt those risks? Um, and what opportunities do those platforms offer in relation to accountability? All right. Um, David, do you want to take on first question? On uh, just, I'm just being mindful of time right now as well. I know that you have a limit. We all have limited time here. So maybe, David, you want to take on what have we learned? Well, I mean, Marion used to be my boss not too long ago. Uh, <laughs> and I've been, I've been back at the ICRC since January only. So I, I don't want to make up a story about what we have learned because I... I'm not in a position to do that. I, I don't know enough on the topic right now, but I'm happy to, to continue the discussion afterwards. Uh, on the issue of the, the, you know, bringing human rights obligations for NGOs um, or aid organizations in general, I think that, um, you know, is the right to information, uh, should it be a human right? Is it something else? I think we, we just have like a moral obligation to do that. Uh, and it's maybe more about how we take 
seriously the, the commitment that we actually decide ourselves to do in the context of the grand bargain, for example, uh, versus uh, like uh, existing legislation. Uh, and I think that, you know, we, we just need to be better at demonstrating what we have uh, taken as a commitment and providing the evidence of, of what we have done or not and being honest where we need to, to improve. I would just mention, I mean, from my, my experience, you know, within the SSC, I think we, we do believe that proximity and access are key, period, both physically and digitally. And I think that's, that's you know, it's changing, you know, as technology are in hands of people and the nature of conflicts is changing, the ability that people have to demand, you know, interaction with us and accountability is changing, is putting more pressure on us. And I think that's extremely positive. Um, I think at the same time, what also is prompting, you know, the SESC institutionally, and I think this is the process where we are now within our new institutional strategy, on trying to figure out how we can become an institution which is more, you know, better accessible, you know, by people. So it's not just obsessed about having access to people, but how, how can we become more accessible, whatever that means, depending on the context, depending on the technology. Um, and I think at the bottom of it, to me, this whole issue, and I think the reflection we have within the SSC is, um, going back to the issue of, of, of morals and principles, is a call for humility. I mean, you know, we know that we know that we can do better, that people deserve better, and I think we want to be thinking, reflecting, funding, you know, uh, ways of operating in a way that, you know, recognize the dignity that people have and, and meets their information and communication needs, whatever that means. So, you know, um, yes, we've been doing this for quite some time. At the same time, you never stop learning, and I think the ICS is pushing itself as well to, uh, to do better. That's my take on, on that particular question. Um, can I, I mean, stick and carrots quickly. Um, Christina, I think the question, you know, from here is, uh, is, the, is the, you know, it seems that this, this topic is also being prompted by greater demands, you know, for, from donors to show, you know, how we engage and are accountable to people. Is that a positive thing? Um, and and what, are the, what are the incentives as well? Is, is that a little bit your question? So how, how are carrots, carrots and sticks working on this particular topic? Well, I think you were asking about, you know, do we need a focus on systems or a focus on outcomes? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think we need carrots and sticks. I think we need both, right? I think, um, you know, outcome-based funding is what I think we all would aspire donors to, to, to be in for. Um, I think, though, we need the systems in order to be able to do that. We don't have, we're not incentivized to do it. We don't have the methods in order to be able to do it. Um, so I, I, I think you answered your own question. I think it's a combination of both. We, as part of our design process, we piloted or we prototyped an idea called Relief Watch, which was actually um, a, uh, a system for peer accountability, whether it's organization to organization or um, affected person to affected person um, or up and down, You know, a way of assessing through a number of different either interviews or through an online platform the ratings of people and the aid they were receiving from whatever organization they were or, or source they were receiving it from. And I think there is a role for that kind of peer accountability to play, but that does require a reorienting of what donors um, prioritize um, and in terms of funding and investment. It also requires um, you know, a mindset change on our part and our positioning within the wider sector. Uh, thanks for that. I think we're going to take this question uh, on digitalization uh, in the, during the coffee and afterwards. I think we are running slightly over time, and I don't want to uh, abuse you know, the trust and confidence you give us today. Um, I think I have one, qu one final question you know, that came online, the first one, which I think is critical to address. This is from Chris uh, Houston, Saint Tayab, and Steggy Hafstender, apologies for 
pronouncing your, your surname wrong. So why didn't you invite people from affected communities to, to participate in the panel? So we wanted to address this, this uh, very important question. And I think I will, I'm looking at my colleagues as well, you know, within ODIA, and I think as far as, you know, ICRC, as, uh, as, you know, the co-organizer with ODIA, I think we felt that, um, in a way, who represents, you know, affected communities? Are we, by inviting a particular member from the affected community, just, you know, ticking the box, you know, on having an affected person into, into, the, into the panel? And at the same time, I think the larger discussion was, actually, it's not, it's, uh, the issues that we need to address, uh, don't, they, don't they relate to what's not working with us? I think people are demanding and expecting, you know, far better, you know, and greater things from us. So can we actually have that discussion internally? So um, I, you know, Chris, uh, Sain, and Stegi, looking forward, I mean, we can have the discussion, you know, offline. Um, I think this is it from our side, it's 3.33. It's three uh, thank you so much, you know, to the panel uh, for uh, for joining us here, and and of course, you know, to you in the audience here in London, and also all colleagues, you know, friends around the world. Um, I want to briefly, personally, thanks, of course, you know, uh, Brenda, um, Wendy from ODI, and other colleagues, you know, who've been working really hard, you know, on making this this uh, this uh, this event, you know, happening. From HHI, Patrick Vin and Ann Bennett, co-authors of the report. Um, at the advisory group, you know, and I'm looking at three, you know, colleagues, you know, who have been working tirelessly, very constructive and critical, you know, feedback. So thanks for thanks for uh, thanks for that. And the SSC, Sebastian Carlies, Philippe Stoll, and Tina for uh, all the fantastic work. Um, well, this is an ever-ending topic. We hope that we get into, you know, better delivering on what people expect from us. So thanks for coming. The video recording of this event will be available tomorrow at the ODI website. Those of you here in London, please join us for coffee. Um, thanks again, and we hope that you enjoy the conversation. So thanks a lot. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.